0: Awesome. Yeah, good job, Josh. Um, awesome and good morning. Also, shout out to y'all. The few, the proud, the, the rainy weather attendees. I just want to say thank you to y'all. I know that the rain presents challenges, uh, whether they be practical challenges like driving or they be personal challenges like, like not morning. wanting to get out of bed. Uh, and sometimes like mic challenges where the mic just be turning on randomly. Uh, but shout out to y'all. So I appreciate y'all. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. Some described Edwin Booth uh, as a prodigy. Uh, At age 15, he had debuted on the stage in the play Richard III alongside of his father. And within just a few years, he was headlining lead roles in Shakespearean dramas across the United States and Europe. He traveled to the most beautiful places and saw the most majestic theaters. He moved the hearts of thousands and captivated the imaginations of every person who was blessed to see him grace the stage. He has been described as potentially being one of the greatest actors of his time. His greatest achievement, however, didn't come on the theater stage, but on a simple train platform. In late 1864, Edwin Booth received an honorary letter from General Adams Budeau, Chief Secretary to General Ulysses S. Grant, commanding general of the Union Army, commending him for an act of absolute bravery. It's a letter that he reportedly carried with him personally every day for what some speculate may have been the remainder of his life. And while he deeply valued the letter, it wasn't the letter itself he was proud of as much as it was what the letter was for. Earlier that year, 1864, again, while waiting for a train in Jersey City, Edwin turned right as a child in the crowd fell off of the platform onto the tracks and into the pathway of a coming train. Without hesitation, Edwin bent down and grabbed and entered the tracks to save the young boy, and the train passed by them just moments later. Edwin would come to find out several weeks later that the young boy was none other than Robert Todd Lincoln, son of Abraham Lincoln, president of the United States of America. Uh, The president and his general were both deeply uh, gracious and thankful for the service of Edwin. While some of you may know Edwin, others of you are likely confused as to why this individual uh, is not heralded in the histories of America as an artist and as a civil servant. Why is it that we don't hear about the prodigy turned hero known as Edwin Thomas Booth? And there's a simple and yet tragic reason for that. Because on April 14th, 1865, Edwin's younger brother, John Wilkes Booth, fatally shot President Abraham Lincoln at Ford's Theater, the father of the very boy Edwin had saved the year before. Edwin would forever be marked with an asterisk by his name and he would be banished from both the professional and social circles that he had formerly participated in for the remainder of his life. Now, while I understand that that story may be as much of a downer as the weather is today, um, I, I tell you this story for the sake of one simple point. Uh, reputation matters. Reputation matters. Edward, Edwin Booth carried around a letter that declared his saving uh, uh, service to Abraham Lincoln's son, and yet it was reputation of John Wilkes Booth, his younger brother, that marked him for the rest of his life. Reputation matters. It matters in our personal life. It matters in our professional life. And whether we know it or not, it matters in our spiritual life. The early church was well aware of this reality. While not compromising their beliefs for the sake of the approval of outsiders, the early church regularly spoke uh, about and understood the necessity of reputation. And don't miss understand me or mishear me, they didn't understand or, or, or really talk about the necessity of their own reputation as much as they understood how their conduct reflected their God, that their conduct reflected their God. Today, we're, we're closing our sermon series entitled Ecclesia, where we've been examining the, the early church in Acts 2 and seeing what we can do to apply uh, some of their ways and their thoughts to our lives and our church life. And today, we're ending on an often, I think, misunderstood idea, which is that this was a community growing in good standing with outsiders. This was a community that was growing in good good standing with outsiders. In other words, they were a community with a good reputation. The early church was a community with a good reputation. i love to start today by simply reading Acts 42 through 47. For the last time, we've been on this for like six, seven, eight weeks. And so, yeah, for the last time in, well... I'm sure it will not be the last time, but for the last time of this sermon series, we're going to read Acts 42 through 47, and I want to encourage you, if you would stand with me in reverence for these scriptures that we, a lot of us, hold very dear, and after I read them, if you want to read them with me, you can, I'm going to simply say, um, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to say, that's, that's, we're we're getting there, we're getting it, Uh, and then, and then we'll take a seat and, and get going. And so, Acts 2, 42 through 47 reads like this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Now, before any discussion about the reputation of the church can be had, we first have to address the elephant uh, that is that is in the room, right? That is that the church has not always done this particularly well. Uh, many, and I think perhaps even some of you here or some of you listening, um have been deeply wounded and hurt by, not just the idea of church, but by by Christians. Uh, Particularly, there may be some of us uh, here or listening later uh, that that may have been deeply hurt or wounded by Christian leaders. Men and women who, on face value, said they had our best interests at heart. And yet, when we actually began to navigate life with them, our experience seemed to contradict that uh, commitment. And there's more reasons for this type of pain that I can possibly go into in one sermon. Uh, There's reasons that that people will never know. Uh, Likewise, the reality is those that are hurt may not even care about the reasons. You may not even care what the reasons are. But what you do deserve, in my estimation, um, and what I can only offer you this morning before we jump into this, is simply this that I'm I'm sorry. Like I am sorry. I'm sorry if you or anyone you love has been hurt by Christian's church church leaders. I'm sorry. While I hope that neither I nor this church are the root of your experiences, I'm sorry you went through what you went through and I'm sorry for the confusion that that pain caused. And right, I'm sorry for how it blurred the lines between human responsibility and God's character. And I'm sorry for how uh, that confusion, the confusion that came from that pain, right, brought about that, that anxiety where God's word seems to instruct us to run to God's people, yet our experience instructs us to run as far away as we can from these same people. I'm sorry. And I'm also thankful, though. I'm I'm thankful that you're either here or that you're listening, right? I'm thankful because you're fighting to cling to the God of love despite his people and those who claim to represent him lacking that very love. And I'm thankful that you are trying to understand God and people in the context of God's great mercies and our great failures. It is actually in that context that the beauty of God is most understood and where the beauty of God is most revealed. It's also unfortunately where we sometimes develop the worst reputation on a personal level. And yet if we persist and fight through that context, the character of God becomes incredibly beautiful. And so thank you. I'll also add that the early church didn't uh, share in many of the issues we see today. They were themselves a marginalized group, right? They, They were outside of the mainstream. Uh, And they were just a group that sought to love and care for others in a way that displayed the character of the one they believed resurrected, the one they believed was the Messiah, the one they believed that was alive then and is alive now. And that's precisely why we're stepping and following the tracks of the early church, what they left for us, so that we can try and attempt to the best of our ability to adopt and take on that character. Because there was a character shaped by love. And how do I know that? How do we know that? Because their consideration of others and and love and care for others is evident across the New Testament, right? It's found in teachings like Jesus' teachings where he says, I I mean, um, in essence, to, to conduct yourselves honorably so that evildoers, so that people will, will glorify God when they see your good, present your good. This is in Matthew 5 to others so that they will glorify God. But, but those words are then echoed in the apostles as they begin to, to distribute the teachings of Jesus, just like we've seen continuously over the past several weeks. In 1 Peter 2, uh, 11 and 12, we see this idea coming to fruition very vividly in the words of Peter. In 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, Peter says this, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Look at some of this language here. Abstain from sinful desires. Sinful desires that will, quote, wage war against your soul. This is language that places us right in the middle of a cosmic or spiritual reality. A cosmic or spiritual reality. Like there is a soul that you cannot see in you, right? And there are forces outside of you that you likewise cannot see. There are spiritual forces and temptations that will attack you and will, according to Peter, wage war on your soul. And we don't see that. But Peter is dropping us right into this spiritual cosmic narrative to let us know this is a reality that you can't run from. And here is Peter's uh, 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 advice to us. Abstain. Fight those battles fight those spiritual battles, resist temptation, run to the Lord, find comfort and care and and security and refuge in him. There is a spiritual cosmic reality that Peter in this text absolutely wants us to understand and to live in. But then Peter continues, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Why? So that they will observe your works and glorify the Lord in what feels like a one-two combination of punches. This is language that, that almost contrary to the first bit, places us right into a practical and observable reality. Please remember, he's saying, your actions are seen by others. Like a child watching parents, right? Your actions are being observed by those around you and scrutinize. And like a child seeks to validate or invalidate the words of a parent based on the conduct of a parent, outsiders are validating or invalidating our faith as they observe our actions. This is a powerful tension, that there is a spiritual and cosmic reality that's in front of us all the time that you can't run from. And there's also a practical, observable reality Right? And the tension of holding these things together, the, 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 the tension of, of holding them when they seem to be contradictory, holding them when they seem to not make sense, holding them when they seem to not correlate, is at the heart of how God's people grow in good standing with others. It's precisely holding those things in tension that provides us a space to grow in good standing. I may even venture to say that the opposite then would be true. That it's when we fail to hold these two realities in tension That's precisely when we often fail to grow in good standing. I would even say that may be where the church has historically failed to grow in good standing, where the church has historically failed in its approach to attempting to love people. How so? Well, when we live in only one of those sides, it comes with the strength, but it comes with dramatic pitfalls as well. When we live in what is only a cosmic or spiritual reality, there often tends to be a lack of compassion, even more than that, let me, be, let me speak with, with, I think, more frankness. There tends to be a lack of humanity. The very frailty and fragility that Jesus took on in becoming human, the very frailty that he has compassion on in his infinite love for us is often seen as unwanted and undesirable. We lose sight of a text like Hebrews 4.15, where speaking about Jesus... The author of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is able, or one who has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. Praise Jesus. All right, praise Jesus for his Compassion. his mercy praise him that every moment that has been one of my failures every moment of one of your failures he deeply understands how we got there he understands exactly what may have overcome our heart that's led us to that failure and he kneels down beside us as one who was also tempted but not as one who was also failed but he kneels beside us as one that rather than join us in our failure invites us into his victory. What good news as those who have failed and failed again that we have a high priest in Jesus who relates to our weakness yet is without sin. Praise God. Praise God that your victor and your king and your shield and your refuge is strong and he is compassionate. He is merciful and he is mighty. He is all powerful and he is all compassionate all at the same time. Praise God, what good news. We are not without a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But oftentimes, friend, when we fail, in the environments that prioritize cosmic and spiritual realities over everything, we don't feel the compassionate response of a God that's humbly become human, but the judgmental response of proud humans who believe they've become God. So they approach us with pride and with arrogance and they weigh on us almost as though they disdain the frail humanity that Jesus himself took on and that he has deep compassion for. And mercy for, right? we feel it almost in a very angry or or, or disregarding way. Uh, some of you have probably heard this story before. Some of you haven't. Um, I, I remember a young man in college, in my time in San Marcos, and his name, uh, let's see. I always try to make up a name while I'm up here. It doesn't work. Because uh, I've been using the name Brad for like two or three weeks. Uh, Let's go with Alan. This kid's name is Alan. And I want you to picture just the standard young man that you would think about in college. He came from a middle-class environment, grew up in church, parents are still together, trying his best to follow Jesus, has also had some stumbles. As is very prevalent with young men in our culture, he struggles with pornographic material and is oftentimes finding himself succumbing to that temptation. But he's pursuing Jesus, and he loves Jesus deeply. And from that desire, from that commitment, he decides to attend something called Passion Conference. Uh, Some of y'all know about Passion Conference. And uh, this year, it was either in Houston or Dallas, it was in one of those two places, but he attended, and, and he doesn't have a very functional car, and so he goes and carpools with a group of people, and they stay at a local hotel near the stadium at which they are meeting for the sessions. And... Every single night and every single session, a mass group of young people from 18 to about 25 go from the hotel to the stadium in downtown Houston. And every single time they go from the hotel to the stadium, there's a group of people with pickets, not saying your God's not real, not saying you believe in fairy tales, with a simple question, why do you still watch porn? And him seeing it assumes there must be something to this. At, we're at a Christian conference. I'm going to go up, I'm going to talk to him. And they ask him that simple question again. If, if the gospel you believe is so real, why do you still watch porn? And he has no valid answer. He has no valid answer. And they begin to tell him, if you believed the real gospel, you would never be tempted like that again. You would never succumb to those temptations. All you really need is the correct message and to be surrounded by the right people. These individuals, uh, we would later come to find out, were from a group called the Church of Wells in Wells, Texas. And it is a cult that asks people to leave their home and leave their communities and move to their compound in Wells, Texas and cut off all communication so they can be purged of all the darkness and sin, and, and they could find the true gospel as they interpret scriptures with the, the leaders of the cult. And they begin to bombard this young man. They begin to bombard him with messages about how he so deeply needed to come to them. He so deeply needed this, that his soul was on the line, that it was every moment of sin was not a moment that God would respond in mercy, but a moment that God would respond in, in judgment and in harshness. And he was filled with fear. And I got a call at 1.30 a.m., my first year of marriage, to Rachel. And I got up out of bed to a phone call from my homeboy that said, Hey, this dude is fixing to roll out to Wells, and I need to come to your house right now. Because if I can't get him off of the ledge right now, he has his bags packed, and he's ready to go. And we spent that night, probably till four in the morning, going through Romans and just understanding the sheer mercy of God that greets us when we fail, because it is in His victory that we receive victory, not in our failures that we receive failure. And is exactly we took Him exactly where uh, we understood the mercies and the grace of God, and He unpacked His bags and and He settled down, and He still struggled for the next couple of weeks. I'm gonna act like He didn't, but but at the same time, it was in understanding the mercies and the compassion that. Come from a God who has humbly taken on the frailty of humanity and understands the the, the temptation that we endure, understands how we would have got to where we got in failure, but yet has not succumbed to that temptation but stands in victory. It was that particular message that gave his heart hope when it seemed like the judgmental uh, and extreme vision of Christianity that these individuals were giving him were were casting him down. They were beating him down. Friend, we, we have to have both of these. But let me be honest, the other side is just as bad, right? Over-emphasizing or strictly living in the practical or, or observable and not understanding the spiritual realities is just as bad. When we only live in that practical reality, we find ourselves enslaved to the thoughts and opinions of others, right? And, and in this jungle of opinion, inevitably a food chain is established, Right? And when one opinion is held in higher esteem for whatever reason, then another opinion, injustice, inevitably, is just lurking around the corner. It's lurking around the corner. It's precisely why the early church leaders wrote things like James 2, where in James 2, uh, the, the brother of Jesus writes, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, And dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, Sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, Stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I don't need to tell a story about this type of conduct right, what this leads to. We've heard stories of people doing things like covering things up, right, protecting their own, trying to preserve the reputation of an elder or church leader, and and so they prioritize that, that practical reality. Let's protect them. Let's protect them from scrutiny, protect them from the pitfalls that are coming, and they neglect the fact that there is a spiritual reality that they are indebted to. That there is a spiritual truth that that they are commanded to submit themselves to. And that spiritual truth is demanding justice for those that are hurt, for those that are marginalized. And that spiritual justice does not care if you are at the top of the mountain or at the bottom of the mountain. That justice does not care whether you need to be protected uh, from the scrutiny of others. It may be that that spiritual justice desires to offer correction. And that correction may be calling out things that are not right. That's not to say that it only does that. It does it in love. But the failure to understand that, right, the prioritizing only that practical or observable reality, right, it inevitably leads to that type of injustice. The reality is we need both. The early church knew this the early church knew that while we seek to honor God spiritually, we likewise seek to care for and respect people practically. And it's in holding that tension together that we then are able uh, to develop a good reputation with outsiders. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? Uh, I'm going to get extremely nerdy for just a second, and so I want you to don't back out. Just engage with me real quick, okay? Uh, This may come as a shock to you, but but I believe that that we do that by placing Jesus— the person of Jesus at the center of our lives. The tension we are called to is only found when we place the one who perfectly lives in both the spiritual and the practical at the center of our own lives. And I don't think this is just a theory. I'm not just putting this out there. We find this in the Bible. I deeply believe we find this in the Bible. If you look at something like 1 Thessalonians 4, we find this teased out in a beautiful and powerful way. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, about brotherly love, You don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God. I want you to remember that, taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders, and not be dependent on anyone. In this verse, Paul is praising the church for its commitment to brotherly love. And like Peter, he connects it to a specific purpose, to a practical purpose. There's a spiritual purpose, but he connects it to the practical purpose, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders. Paul, like Peter, Paul, like Jesus, understands that those two realities are to be held in tension, the spiritual and the practical. But there's something else happening here that is extremely powerful and beautiful and I think is the key to how do we do this. The very brotherly love that Paul is connecting to the perception of outsiders is also connected to Christ himself. In verse 9, Paul describes the church in Thessalonica's brotherly love as taught by God. Taught by God. This Greek word is theodidactos and it's literally God taught. It's literally the two words brought together. This is the only time this word is used in the Bible. And check this out. This is fascinating. This is the only time or the first time that this is used in recorded Greek literature ever at all. Paul invented a word. And he said, you guys, y'all are like God taught. And everybody was like, the heck is that God taught? Read that again. And he read it again. And while some hearing the letter would have been perplexed and, and would have thought, what does that even mean? Others would have, ta- would have got it and started to connect it to something powerful that, that Paul was likely alluding to that he would have been connecting this idea that you are God-taught now as God's people. Unlike any other point in time in history, you are now God-taught. He would have been connecting this to a messianic promise that's in Isaiah 54, 13, where in the Greek translations of the Old Testament, also known as the Septuagint, if you're nerdy and you want to write that down, go ahead. Uh, and in Isaiah 54, 13, it says, Then when the Messiah has come and the promises of God are fulfilled, and God is with his people, then all your children will be taught by the Lord. They'll be instructed by him. Their prosperity will be great. Why? Why all of a sudden, distinctly in the era and the new age and the new world that the Messiah creates, will people now be taught by God? Because unlike any other point in history, God will now be with his people. God will now be with his people. They will be his people, and he will be their God. And more of a beautiful vision, unlike anything the Old Testament writers could have ever imagined, God would not just be present, but he would be in that the spirit of the living God, the same God that resurrects Christ from the grave would now be living inside of the people of God, the those who follow Jesus. And that God at work in their heart would teach them brotherly love, would draw them to the idea of caring for others, would guide them in the truths of our faith, would exalt the person of Christ, would convict them of sin, would lead them away from injustice and toward justice. Why? Because they have a good book. No, because they have... God because the living God is living and amongst them that he's not dead he's not in a tomb but in his resurrection he declares I'm alive and you are mine and I am yours and the central figure of the person of Jesus now is with us forever and we hear the echoes of Matthew 28 where Jesus says and behold I am with you until the end of the age friend when that person is removed from the center of our faith and therefore the center of our life like a like a a balance wire walking with with an unweighted type of bar we find ourselves drifting more and overly to something spiritual or more and overly to something practical when the one who has been who is incarnate in the practical world from the spiritual world who comes from god but is now all man instructs us honor god and love others love god and love neighbor love god and love people right? That's the vision of the gospel that Jesus has. And Paul is looking at his people, looking at God's people, and saying, now you can accomplish that. Why? Because he's there. The same way he's with me as I write is the same way he's with you as you read. And the same way he's with them as they heard, he's now with you as you listen. That's the reality that we're invited to. How do do we possibly have the wisdom to navigate honoring God, loving God, and respecting and loving others. Friend, the person of Jesus who perfectly navigates right, this extremely tight wire has to be central to in our lives. We have to regularly interact with what it means to desire to be holy as he is holy, and then experience what it means to be met with mercies and kindness when we fail. We have to be constantly under the instruction of the one who calls us to submit our lives and to count the cost and to follow, yet who is also the one who can relate to us in our weakness in every way, yet is without sin. It is when that person, the figure of Christ, when the almighty, the infinite, becomes and makes himself finite, the one who invented the world, now submits himself to the darkness of the world in the cross and in death, so that we who were submitted to darkness could now be made alive in him. It's when we're constantly submitting our lives to that figure that his teaching, his ways, his heart begins to form our ways, our heart, our lives. That's the only way. That is the absolute only way. Because no other way makes sense. No other way makes sense. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to provide compassion and mercy at the rate that God provides compassion and mercy unless there was an infinite God who despite his justice and holiness still was able to, again, hold in tension in this weird, peculiar, and amazing way the realities of infinite mercy and kindness and love. No other way makes sense unless there was a God who actually displayed it to us first. And it is with us now. Right? That's Paul's vision for us. Love God, love others. Hold the tension between spiritual and practical. How do you do it? Follow, worship, serve, learn, spend time with, read about, talk to, sing to the one who perfectly embodies all of what's spiritual and that he is all God and all of what's practical and that he is all human and follow that one person. He will be the guiding light. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews puts it. And so, so a couple of things here before we finish. How do we do that practically? That's the theological part. And I hope that gets you excited as it gets me. I understand if it doesn't. I'm not, I'm not tripping about that. We're going to get to some practical things. Get excited about this. Um, How do we do that on on an extremely practical way, right? What does your life look like when you start to really pursue that? I have probably like four things here. I'm only going to get to two. Um, The first thing is this. I, I I want to encourage you to like actually seek justice. And what I mean by that is look at the world around you, and I want you to really remember this phrase. I think this may be, there's better advice out there by smarter and wiser individuals but I think this is the best advice I have given us in terms of what pursuing justice looks like. Meet the needs that are present, not the needs that are projected. Meet the needs that are present, not the needs that you've projected. What do I mean by that? There's nothing that feels more condescending than when you are, are in a situation where you have evident needs that are present, and when someone comes in to say, let me fix the things that you should be worrying about. Dude, I know what I need to be worrying about. I'm worried about the things that are vexing my heart right now. And meanwhile, all the things that I'm hearing from those that are trying to help me is all the things that I need to be focused on other than the things that are vexing me right now. There is nothing that is more condescending, and to be quite honest, that I think fills us with as much just frustration, and, and sometimes hurt. Again, I think this, can very much so be echoed in some of the pain that I hear when I talk to people who have been hurt by church, is that there is this set of needs that they have, and yet it seems like Christians around them are never interacting with those real needs. And they're constantly just trying to project the needs they believe they have, that the other person, the, the, the fixer, is trying to say, well, let's take care of this. This is the real need. Uh, and they never feel like they get the help they want, the help they need. And so seek justice, not by going, what is like, like, what is the Lord telling me? I'm not saying we shouldn't pray to the Lord. Coincidentally, y'all know that lately I've been in love with prayer. But rather, the Lord may be guiding you instead of saying, Lord, how do I need to come in and tell people that they need some, you know, these are the things you're worried about? Because it may be that the compassionate, infinite Word of God who became flesh and understands our weakness may be looking at their burdens and saying, just meet those. Start with that. If you don't start with that, you ain't never gonna get to this you ain't never going to get to the stuff that, that you think I'm worried about until you start meeting the needs of the stuff that they're worried about. And so don't, don't try to fix the needs that, are, that you're projecting, but rather right, try to meet the needs that are present. Um, we're trying to do this as a church. I, I don't know how successful we're being all the time, but we're trying. And, and I got to be honest, a moment of encouragement came this year. Uh, when Y'all remember when DPS was, was patrolling... Uh, these here, Austin streets, y'all remember that? And then everybody was like, oh, yeah, we get some more police presence. And there was like, oh, that police presence ain't helping as much as we thought it would. Because it was like, hey, uh, we're going to get this police presence out there, and we're going to put it where all of the Latino and black people are. And I was like, oh, dude, this is not, this isn't setting itself up for success. I ain't going to lie. Right from the jump, we got some issues going here. And it, it caused an issue in our community. And uh, during that time, one of my friends uh, and a fellow pastor was in a meeting with a police chief. And some of y'all have heard me tell this story as well. Uh, and, and they began to talk about the fact that they're distributing that police presence in communities that have need, like Dove. we were one of the communities they referenced, the Dove Springs area, the Southeast Austin area. Uh, and then he said, but, but as those communities get more resources, right? that's not as necessary. And then he started saying, like in Dove Springs, there's this church that meets there. And they do a really good job at serving people. And they have like a lot of plans to try and help the community. And uh, my homeboy was literally like, what's the name of that church? And it was like, well, there's only like three of them. So. Uh, and he was like, does it start with an R? And he was like, well, they meet in, a, in an elementary school. Uh, and then we're the only church that meets in elementary in an elementary school. Uh, and he was like, does it start with an R? Again, is a persistent uh, question asker. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, 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 it does. And he's like, refuge, he was like, yeah, that's the one. Right, again, I don't know if everything we're doing is exactly what's needed but I know that we're trying our best to be sensitive to the needs that are present and not project needs onto the community so that when we seek justice and we seek wholeness, we seek the things that are actually needed, not the things that feel like unhelpful. Um, I'm I'm trying to avoid the word colonizer because I think it's like a little bit of a, a, it's not the word I want to use, but it is kind of coming in and projecting our world onto them and saying, no, this is what you need to be worried about. When it's like, man, just meet those needs first. And so meet the needs that are present, not the needs that we project. And the second one is just love people where they are. Love people where they are. If we have a baseline of loving people where they are, man, that is a great starting place. It is a great starting place of following the footsteps of the one who comes to save sinners, who declares that it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to seek and save sinners. The lost. It is a great step to just love people where they are. Uh, I'm going to finish with this: that um, a few years ago, uh, I was working at the well, and when I was working at the well, an individual came in, and let's let's call them Matthew. Uh, and Matthew um, came into the, the well at the time was probably like. 400 people, let's say. And when Matthew came in, Matthew did not make it clear early on, but in the second to third time interacting with us, let us know, I'm transgender. Uh, I was was born a girl, but I identify as a male now. And the fear and insecurity with which they divulged this information was, from my perspective and the perspective of others, quite heartbreaking. Because there was an inherent fear that while the two or three times they had visited and and began to settle in and begin to enjoy their time there, that there was potential for this information to somehow break what was building, that it was somehow going to be some breaking point for them. And the most beautiful thing happened when that information was divulged. And the beautiful thing is this, that nothing changed. People didn't go, oh, we got to love them less. People also didn't go, we got to love them more. They just decided, okay, let's just love you. Same way I loved you last week is the way I'm going to love you this week. And the way I love you this week is going to be the same way I love you next week. And there was questions. I'm not acting like there wasn't. There was questions like, "What what do you think about me? And my sexuality. To which a lot of time, my response in my circumstance, in my situations and conversations was like, why do you want to know this so bad? Why, why is it that you want to know what I think about this one thing in your life so much? Because here's the thing. The way I love you now is the way I loved you then. And so, I mean, I'm going to love you like this Tomorrow. And I'll be honest, some people at the church got a little uncomfortable. Some of them were very comfortable. But I'll never forget that there was a time where Matthew had not attended church for a few weeks. And then I saw Matthew walk in the door, and it was a door a lot like that door. And um, like Edwin Thomas Booth turning at just the right moment, I happened to turn at just the right moment to see Matthew walk in. And I remember I looked at Matthew, and my eyes got big, and I put my arms up, and I just went, oh, my God! And I disrupted the church service terribly. And I went and I hugged Matthew as hard as I could for as long as he was cool with me hugging. Uh, And when I let go, I looked at Matthew, and Matthew was starting to get tears in his eyes. Several weeks into Matthew attending that church, Matthew got baptized. And the thing is, I don't know every detail of Matthew's life don't need to be worked out today. I ain't going to lie. A part of me questions whether every detail of Matthew's life needs to be worked out before he dies. Because to be quite honest, there is a God whose infinite love covers a multitude of sins well beyond the scope of sexuality and well into the scope of hurting other people where the God of the Bible takes on human flesh so that he would die for both the oppressed and for the oppressor and make the world new as he recreates everything around him. That's all we were working at when it came to love in Matthew. Love people where they are. Don't love them where you want them to be where you hope they get to, love them where they are. Love them the way you did last week and make sure the way you love them next week is the way you love them today. Just don't change it, just love them. Love them. That's all you need to worry about. It's God's business to do what God wants to do with that love. Your job is to love God and to love others. Our job is to hold in tension the spiritual reality that we live in and the practical reality that we live in. If we accomplish that and do that well, submit it to the Lord and say, do with this what you want, I'm confident, and I don't promise, but I'm confident that we, like the early church, will be a community that grows in good standing with the communities around us. Because they'll look and say, man, that's the type of love, that's the type of brotherly love, as Paul would describe it, um, that I think I might be longing for. Like the early church, we want to be aware that reputation is necessary, but not our reputation, but the fact that our conduct reflects our God. I, I, I hope and long and desire for us to be a church that reflects the love and care and compassion of the God that we serve. because I think that's what he longs to greet you with and that's what he longs to greet me with as much as he longs to greet them with. And so I pray that that can be what we reflect into the world around us. That when people walk away from you and other people that call refuge home, the reflection of the God that we serve would be one of deep and profound love and compassion and care and patience, that they would meet an advocate in you that is not unable right to relate to our weakness to their weakness right that that, that they would meet an advocate like that in us i gotta go let's pray um father thank you so much for the mercies and compassion that you meet us with father thank you that throughout the new testament our good standing is not built on how successful we are our good standing is not built on how perfect we are our good standing is not built on uh, how, how, uh, how much we've accomplished, but our good standing is built on simply whether reflect, we're reflecting the compassion and love and mercy that you so overwhelmingly pour out on us. Thank you, Father. Thank you that while we are called to hold in tension the spiritual realities of our lives and the practical realities of our lives, that we are called to love God and to love neighbor and love others, we're not not told to just pursue that way of life without first seeing someone do it, but you yourself in the person of Jesus, in your son, enter into the story of our lives and embody perfectly all that is holy and divine and all that is human and frail and weak. And yet, you walk that line absolutely perfectly. Thank you, Jesus, our pioneer and perfecter. Thank you, our leader, our Messiah, our King, our Savior. Thank you, Jesus. That the love we're meant to reflect into the world is the infinite love that you greet us with. And so, even then, we are not intended to walk and to pioneer that road, but we're meant to follow the one that you have paved for us through your loving footsteps and careful, compassionate ways. Thank you. Let us pursue an experience of love and mercy with you so that we may be sent on mission and in purpose to the world around us that desperately needs your loving compassion and mercy. I thank you for equipping us with it by the experience of it as we worship you. I love you. I thank you. I I ask that our church would be enabled and empowered in this way for the glory of your son, but, but I think your heart's desire for the good of the communities around us. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.